You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 108 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, I'm talking to author and alchemist Rubafilus Salfluer. This is his second appearance on the podcast. And if you want to check out his first appearance, go back to episode number 41. So what are we going to talk about then? Well, alchemy, of course. Uh, spiritual alchemy, practical alchemy. We're going to talk a bit about uh, the science of winemaking, the Emerald Tablet, esoteric orders such as Freemasonry and the Rosicrucians and uh, a few other things. Uh, so let's begin. So thanks for being on the podcast again. Oh, it's nice to be back. Anything new that's happened since last time we talked? Uh, quite a few things. Uh, the forum I've been running for the last three years, um, I'm in the process of closing it down at the moment, uh, largely because it's had run its course. I can't remember whether I talked to you about that last time, but I was asked to set up a forum um, on Yahoo Groups just over three years ago. Um, where I, uh, so that I could e explain in more detail uh, my views on hermetism and alchemy particularly. Um, so what I ended up doing there was delivering a series of essays and um, I think we reached something like uh, 150 essays in the end or something like that, 300,000 words of discussion. So I'm just in the just closing that forum down over the next couple of months and um, taking all that uh, work that happened on that forum and starting to work it into a series of books, uh, which I'll be self-publishing through Lulu probably and maybe another year at the most. That work started now and I've got a couple of people helping me. Uh, so closing down the old forum and started just started up a new one on lab work, uh, basically teaching a small group of people the details of the acetate path from beginning to end. So that was basically taking people off the old forum who were the most active and most interested in lab and putting them on a new private forum. So we're about two or three months into that new group now and uh, I assume we're going to be running there for about another year, year and a half. And then all of the um, essays, instruction and um, email discussions that happen in that forum will be compiled into another book, uh, which will basically be a big book on the acetate path, explaining everything in detail from beginning to end. And because of all those changes with the publishing and everything, um, upgrading my website at the moment, taking down all the old lectures and putting up samples of the essays from the old forum and probably a few samples of essays from the new lab forum just to give people a taste of what's going on. I'm also looking at, um, because you're probably aware that Salamander and Sons closed down 
and so only two of my books that they were published that they published out of the five originally planned um, ended up going on sale so now I'm going to redo that whole series the, those five books and I've got somebody helping me with that at the moment the Hermes Paradigm series I get a lot of requests about that asking where to buy copies of those books from but they're all sold out now so you can only get them if you can find them secondhand and they're not cheap now so I'm also doing that I'm going to republish that whole Hermes Paradigm series myself through self-publishing to do a better job of it I hope there'll be upgrades on the first two volumes that had already been published the second one the second volume on the plant work is going to be almost completely rewritten from scratch so yeah lots of publishing stuff going on and lots of lecturing stuff so busy busy so it's like spring cleaning yeah it is it is and it all started probably about a year ago I think I started working on Deciding that I was going to self-publish, I'd looked at it quite a few years ago, but the self-publishing, that whole industry now has changed quite a bit, and it's a lot easier to do now, and it's um, far more uh, easier and profitable to work than going through a conventional publishing. I think con conventional publishing has pretty much had its day now, especially where books on esoteric subjects are concerned. It's... It's just simply not practical to do that kind of thing anymore. Yeah, it's, it's like TV. I guess it's dead also. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You, I wanted, because I've been uh, debating on this topic on on the internet. And, you know, in alchemy, you have what you call inner or spiritual alchemy. And then you have like laboratory, practical, outer alchemy, whatever you want to call it. And there's, from my perspective what i've noticed there's like three different opinions on this one opinion is that the only real alchemy is the practical alchemy and anything else is just some new age hippie mumbo jumbo then there's the people who say the opposite where there's spiritual alchemy is the only way and laboratory alchemy it's some sort of pseudo chemistry and it's all a metaphor And then you have the third option, which is that it's like a bit of both. What's your position on, on this? Well, first of all, the whole concept that uh, the lab process is not real or accurate or people are misunderstanding it and it's really all uh, internal or spiritual is a very modern concept, really, that only developed since Carl Jung um, studied alchemical texts, classic alchemical texts, and a lot of his uh, psychoanalysis revolved around what he um, figured out about alchemy himself. Um, people looked at that and thought, oh yeah, so Jung had it all worked out, and it's all actually just psychology. There's no, the lab work side of it is not accurate, and uh, people who read those texts in that kind of way are being misled. And uh, the uh, extreme end of the, that view is that the chemical language in old alchemical texts was basically just a cipher language for something which was really psychology. Uh, that definitely is not true. Anybody who um, 
believes that approach to alchemy, that the lab is misleading and that it's only internal, has no idea about the lab tradition. Because if they had any idea at all, they would understand that the lab tradition is completely accurate. Uh, back in the old days, uh, previous to um, the dawn of the scientific age, when lab alchemists were still working their um, original um, system, that some of them did both, and they were largely only initiates and uh, people who had uh, studied the whole system uh, that esoterically. And they studied Kabbalah, and the internal side of lab alchemy was based on what they understood about the alchemical aspect of the Hebrew Kabbalah, and they worked lab work. People who believe that only lab work is the true tradition and the internal tradition is not at all accurate and it's new age rubbish or whatever, you'll find in 99% of cases with people like that, they have no background in esoteric study at all. They've never been a member of any kind of esoteric fraternity. They know nothing at all really about the esoteric tradition. They know nothing about Kabbalah. They've never been initiated um, in, in an esoteric group before. And largely their approach to alchemy is a chemical approach. Um, they usually see uh, classic alchemy as being as being like a more primitive version of chemistry, which is not true at all. Anybody who tries to approach lab alchemy from that angle won't get anywhere. And that's been proven time and time again uh, in our age because there are a lot of very intelligent and very um, well-educated chemists and physicists who have studied traditional lab alchemy and have virtually succeeded in nothing where the subject is concerned, which proves that uh, trying to solve um, the problems of alchemy from a chemical point of view, it simply doesn't work. The alchemists had a whole different view of chemistry, of the nature of reality and of the nature of uh, physical matter. And although it's not in conflict with um, chemistry, it's very different. So in my experience, people who believe that the internal work is um, an illusion and that only lab work is the accurate approach to the tradition, these people usually have a very chemical view of lab alchemy. And I would say today that at least 50% of people who have a serious interest in uh, lab alchemy, even a lot of people who don't think that they are like have a very modern chemical view of alchemy, uh, usually do have a very modern chemical view of alchemy. And it's, it's not accurate. It simply isn't accurate. I've talked to a lot of people like that and they have a, a lot of even very basic misunderstandings about what alchemy is and how to approach it and how to solve problems where alchemy is concerned. There's another important um, aspect of this, and this is the, like the third group, the people who say that it's a bit of each, that one of the important things about um, lab alchemy is that it was deliberately designed to prove esoteric concepts like spiritual concepts about the nature of the mind and the nature of uh, spiritual growth and development. Uh, it's the only 
aspect of hermetism, which has a completely physical side to it that's designed to actually prove the claims that are made about the spiritual side of the tradition. Uh, that, that situation wouldn't have arisen in the first place if um, there wasn't a spiritual aspect to lab alchemy. Uh, most people are aware of the idea that um, attaining the Philosopher's Stone and the Elixir of Life are designed to be proofs by alchemy that the lower nature of man can be regenerated and uh, evolved into a higher divine state. That's one of the most basic concepts of alchemy. Anybody who practices lab alchemy thinking that only lab alchemy is accurate and uh, is seeking the Philosopher's Stone and the Elixir of Life and thinks that the only thing those two substances have to offer is the production of gold and gems and the uh, extension of longevity simply has no understanding of alchemy. Uh, you'd be better off trying to solve those problems simply through chemical means than approaching it through alchemical means. Uh, also, anybody who has ingested very powerful alchemical preparations, high-end alchemical preparations, will tell you that the first concern that they have about those substances is that they have a very powerful effect on the mind and on your spiritual view of the nature of reality. You can't get away from it. So uh, people who are stuck in this concept that only the chemical side has value, those kind of people have never produced anything powerful from alchemy and ingested it. Because if they had of, they wouldn't hold to that point of view that chemistry is the only view. Uh, and, it and it works the same with people who believe that um, alchemy is only a spiritual or psychological discipline. Those kind of people have never been in a situation where they've ingested something that's been produced from the lab tradition that uh, affects their psychological and spiritual state. Because if they had, they would realize that the lab tradition is part of the spiritual tradition and that the two of them together are um, codependent and uh, co-productive. One of the uh, most basic concepts of lab alchemy is that we live in a binary uh, reality here. Everybody is aware of the binary nature of this reality, even at its most basic level, that we have males and females and up and down and left and right and back and forward and day and night and love and hate. Everything here revolves around a binary um, condition. And within a human being, we have the outer world and the inner world. Everybody knows that they have an inner world. They can't escape that and everybody knows there is an outer world. And alchemy was designed specifically to teach what each of those two levels of the binary are about and to teach that they basically are the same reality divided into two different conditions. So anybody who thinks only one or other of those branches of alchemy is real doesn't understand alchemy. It's, it's that simple. And these are like very fundamental concepts of hermetism. 
very fundamental concepts. So how come this gold chasing started? I mean, um, is it that they misunderstood what the concept of creating gold meant? Or is it that the gold you create is to be used for something else? I don't know. How did, how did they... Getting, how did alchemy become so connected with making gold? Well, the, amongst people who are have an esoteric interest in alchemy, there's a predisposition towards seeing alchemy as being entirely esoteric. That alchemists of the past were like they studied the occult and Kabbalah and magic and mysticism as well as the lab work and all that. But that's actually not true. Only a very small amount of alchemists from past times looked at the whole subject in that way. The bulk of people were actually only interested in making gold and making um, gems and things like that, and probably seeking the elixir as well. So historically, if we look back, for example, in Europe, um, even as far back um, in the Middle East and Rome as uh, about 280 years after the beginning of the Christian era to a, to the early um, 300 AD, even as far back as then, and then later um, through the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance, one of the things that has always accompanied the study of alchemy was an industrial interest in the subject. Because the more that alchemists learned about the nature of physics and chemistry, the more that that learning interested people who were capitalists, basically, especially the aristocracy um, and the ruling um, classes. They wanted alchemy to be bent toward producing gold, first of all, because of money, obviously, and they also knew that alchemists understood a lot about metallurgy And, uh, of course, that was a big interest because of um, for industrial purposes and for war and things like that. Anything that they could learn about chemistry and physics was um, commercially and um, capitalistically uh, important. So, for example, in northern Europe, for a, a long period of time during the Middle Ages and up into the Renaissance, the ruling classes uh, maintained an industry in alchemy where the people who practiced alchemy and worked for them in special sections of the city um, that were like enclaves for alchemists, those guys were paid to discover the uh, secrets of alchemy largely for industrial purposes. And a lot of people who... consider themselves to be students of the subject of alchemy, know nothing about that aspect of um, the alchemical tradition, or they've heard of it and they just simply don't care about it. And so they live in a, a, a bit of a delusion about the real nature of alchemy historically. And that is that most people in the last 2,000 years who have been interested in alchemy have no interest in the esoteric or spiritual side of alchemy. All they were interested in was the industrial side, glass making, metallurgy, um, the medicine, medicinal side of alchemy, and of course, gold, silver, and um, the elixir of life. So that's 
why there is still today a very strong tradition of people who approach the subject almost exclusively from a chemical point of view and they see it as being you know all they are interested in is discovering whether or not gold can be produced and then it's not hard to figure that if they actually solved that problem and pr produced a transmutation agent and made gold what's the next logical conclusion for a person person like that it's just money and wealth that's all they're not interested in the esoteric side of things unless of course they also manage to produce the elixir properly and start ingesting that and then they're going to find themselves getting a fright and learning that there's actually more to the subject than they had allowed themselves to believe those people always make me think of that legend uh, of that king midas who touched everything and he couldn't eat he couldn't do anything because everything was gold That's what it's like because they become kind of those, that branch of people that are involved in alchemy become so obsessed with whether transmutation is real or not and then whether or not they can produce gold. Their whole view of alchemy revolves around that and so they miss everything else. And what they don't realize is that the guys who originally discovered transmutation and developed the whole science of alchemy way, way back in the day, those guys were not chemists who were solely interested in transmutation agents and the production of noble metals they were um, their approach to alchemy was esoteric and it was that esoteric side of their interest in alchemy that allowed them to discover how to do the whole thing in the first place so without that there's no way that you can really understand the subject properly and certainly not deeply enough in order to start seriously solving the problems of alchemy But if you look at the emerald tablet, it's written in a very symbolic way. Even a novice could say that. Uh, could you read the emerald tablet in a literal way? Or, or is it a mix of the two? That's um, a, a really important um, idea because all the oldest documents connected with alchemy are obviously esoteric and are part of a symbolist tradition and it's obvious that they're not just hiding chemical knowledge about how to make transmutation agents or um, longevity elixirs they were hiding something else as well and they were more interested in hiding that something else than they were about hiding the chemistry of the of the whole process so yeah when we like the emerald tablet arguably is the oldest document that we have in connection with lab alchemy and it's quite obviously more than a chemical um, text there's an esoteric um, aspect to it but the problem is when you're very fixated on chemistry and you know I've studied chemistry at university and it's very easy if you're brought up in modern society and if you go through university level chemistry courses to be very impressed by what chemistry has achieved And to think that chemistry has all the answers to everything and that you can find a solution to everything in a textbook or in some chemist's head. But the truth of the matter is, there are a lot of people who have been trained at university in chemistry and physics who have applied themselves to the, um, to the problem of alchemy and who have virtually succeeded in nothing. And so because they haven't succeeded, 
they believe that alchemy doesn't really do what has been claimed of it. And the other side of their view is that they are um, they have an extremely rational uh, approach to alchemy because of their um, commitment to chemistry. And so when they see things like the Emerald Tablet and very old texts which are very esoteric and then later texts during the Middle Ages and the Renaissance which have a lot of religious language in them, they look at all that stuff and just think, well, you know, those people were primitive and stupid. And that they just, because they didn't know better, they overlaid all that esoteric stuff and all that religious stuff on the chemistry. But hey, today we're all enlightened and we know that all that esoteric stuff and all that religious stuff is just rubbish. And the only thing there that is possibly of any value is the chemistry. But the stupid thing about that point of view is that the original people who discovered alchemy, they were obviously smarter than modern chemists and physicists. They had a view of the nature of reality and access to knowledge, which uh, today very few people have access to and which chemistry and physics has not been able to figure out. Yet it's still uh, a common attitude amongst the people who have a completely chemical approach to alchemy to look back at those people who originally discovered alchemy and who succeeded in transmutation and say, oh, but they were idiots because they believed in religion and esoteric stuff. Uh, you know, that really isn't a rational conclusion about the state of the mind of those people who originally discovered alchemy. If they were interested in esoteric things and if they were interested in religion back then, they were smart people and uh, they must have been doing that for a reason, in my opinion. According to the internet, uh, you're a member of uh, various organizations like the Rosicrucians, Freemasonry, uh, Golden Dawn and a few others. Uh, is there any alchemical like tradition within those organizations or are they just focused on uh, the the inner part or the spiritual part of alchemy? Now, that's a good question because originally uh, it's also a bit of a complicated issue. Uh, we have to first of all be aware that during the Renaissance and up into the close of the Renaissance, that there were um, secret societies and esoteric fraternities in Europe and um, in other parts of the world where the, the teachings of those organizations were religious and esoteric and they involved instruction in uh, theology, alchemy and what we would today call magical or mysticism. Most esoteric fraternities around that time could be said to have uh, had teachings of that nature. The problem was when we reached the late 1600s and into the 1700s, the Western tradition virtually almost completely died and everything that was left of it was pretty much gobbled up by very early Freemasonry. And uh, during the 16, 17 and early 1800s, uh, the Western tradition had almost lost its entire connection with its, with its roots from um, the Dark Ages, the medieval period and the Renaissance. 
And one of the important aspects of all that was that the alchemical tradition went almost completely underground, like virtually nobody had access to it. And then in the mid-1800s, <coughs> there was a move toward rebuilding the Western tradition. So we see people like Alethus Levi, for example, who's uh, considered to be the father of the modern Western esoteric tradition, trying to reinvent the whole Western esoteric tradition. They had a lot of access to things like Kabbalah and theology, but they had no access to accurate knowledge about alchemy. So when new esoteric fraternities were built out of that uh, rebirth of the Western tradition, up until the time when the Golden Dawn was formed in 1888, <clears throat> and the Golden Dawn is really considered to be sort of like the benchmark for modern Western occultism. Most roots that exist now grew out of a branch of the Golden Dawn or out of the Golden Dawn directly. And that they structure themselves and they teach pretty much based on uh, what the structure and teachings of the Golden Dawn were like. It's not entirely true, but it's very much the, the bulk of the story where the modern Western tradition is concerned. So then what happened was up until the 1960s, there were only a couple of groups left in Europe and America that had access to information about the, 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 the truth about lab alchemy. And one of those groups was Armorc, or the ancient mystical order Rosicrucius, which is based in the United States. Um, probably the strongest branch of Armorc's teachings was its lab knowledge. For some reason, that group, which was founded at the end of the 1800s, um, beginning of the 1900s, they had inherited from somewhere a very strong lab tradition, and they used that as the backbone for building the rest of their teaching on. Uh, the strange thing about that is that over the years that Armorc has existed, they have uh, repressed their alchemical teaching, and then they have like brought it back out and started teaching it again and then repressed it again. And then we find that in the 1960s, so Armok was really the only group that knew about lab alchemy. There were a lot of other groups like the Golden Dawn and then later Builders of the Aditum and uh, things like that, that talked about alchemy and had a theoretical and meditational instruction that they believed was based on alchemy. But it was quite obvious when we read the documents of those organizations now, like the inner documents of those organizations, that they had absolutely no access to instruction in the real tradition. Even though they believe themselves and advertise themselves to be the guardians of the Western mystery tradition, it's obvious that they weren't because they were missing a whole branch of Western esoteric instruction, which was lab alchemy. So basically what they did is they invented their own version of alchemy. And then it wasn't until the early 1960s, when Frater Albertus broke off from Armorc because he was arguing with them over reactivating their lab alchemy classes, and they didn't want to do it. And he said, right, that's it. I'm going to go off and I'm going to found my own group and I'm going to teach what you guys have taught me and I'm going to do it publicly. So early 1960s, Frater Albertus was the first person to basically take that little stream of accurate alchemical knowledge that Armorc had had 
and he set up a school in Utah in the US and started teaching uh, classes to basically anybody who applied for them. And what that did was it caused a whole bunch of people that were involved in the mainstream occult community, people who were like members of the Golden Dawn and builders of the Adytum, Freemasons, uh, things like that, to suddenly realize that there actually was a deeper, more accurate tradition that revolved around um, lab, the lab aspect of alchemy. So what happened then was that groups like the Golden Dawn and BOTA started looking at all of that and absorbing bits of it into their own um, systems to try and make up for what was missing. So today, uh, we have a situation where we have all these esoteric fraternities that were part of the revival of the Western mystery tradition in the mid-1800s, and originally almost all of them had no accurate alchemical teaching at all. But today, a number of um, branches of those groups have readopted alchemical training. And what they've done is they've largely taken what Frada Albertus taught, and then later on what Jean Dubuis through the philosophers of nature taught. And they've um, absorbed, you know, made up their own version of those lectures and um, added them to the instruction that they give on other occult subjects. So yes, uh, modern esoteric fraternities do teach lab alchemy, not all of them, but some of them do but it's only a relatively very new thing. It's something that really probably started developing about 15 years ago. And um, unfortunately, most people that are members of those kinds of groups like the Golden Dawn and Freemasonry and Builders of the Arbitum, most of them are not really interested in lab alchemy um, as far as practicing it. They're interested in the theory, but they only want to know the superficial theory. They don't really want to know the heavy stuff. Most people join those groups because they are interested in the mystical and magical sides of the hermetic tradition, not the alchemical side. So, so what 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 that has led to was, even though I was a member, like you mentioned, of a lot of esoteric organisations in the last twenty five years, and worked my way up to the top levels in most of them. Today, I don't belong to any of them largely because they have nothing of interest to teach somebody like me. I outgrew them all you know, pretty much about 10 years ago. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, uh, is Golden Dawn uh, a code for, uh, for, for piss, like urine? No, no, it's not. The Golden Dawn knew nothing about alchemy when it was first established, and it actually grew out of a pseudo-Masonic organization called the Societas Rosicruciana in Anglia, uh, which had been around for about a hundred years before the Golden Dawn. What happened was a bunch of Freemasons got together and they wanted um, an esoteric branch of Freemasonry that taught, uh, uh, you know, within, it, within the bounds of its own group, openly taught occult knowledge and had lectures on it and things like that. So what, happens, what, what happened was a small group of high-ranking Freemasons took the structure of the Societas Rosicrucianea in Anglia, the SRIA, and they used that as a template to build the Golden Dawn out of. 
and there was no alchemical knowledge in the SRIA and in the early days of the Golden Dawn there was a brief mention of it in a couple of lectures and um, no knowledge of really what alchemy was about at all. Golden Dawn is a very typical archetypal Western tradition esoteric fraternity of the um, revival of Western occultism in the mid-1800s where it had the Kabbalistic and magical sides of the tradition to a certain degree wanted the alchemical side but had no access to the original teaching so anything that is said about the golden dawn uh, where alchemy is concerned in almost every case is um, either misunderstanding or it's a lie or it's just inaccurate because there was no alchemy in the golden dawn officially until about 10 years ago I also saw that you studied oniology. Uh, can you explain what that is and why you did that? Uh, I w- wanted to change my career about uh, 10 years ago. And I originally uh, wanted to study as a sh- chef to get my uh, culinary arts ticket. But I met a guy who was a member of my Masonic Lodge who was a tutor at the local Um, college here and he said uh, he was a tutor on the wine science program so he said why don't you come and have a look at the open day and uh, reevaluate whether or not you want to be a chef and get into the wine industry and I was so impressed by the presentation that they gave on the open day that I decided to sign up for the wine science program um, which is the science of enology wine science so basically wine science is taught Uh, has two different facets to it. Viticulture, which is basically growing grapevines, and uh, wine science itself, which is wine production. And you can, in some countries, you have to study both courses over four years, but here in New Zealand, you can do one or the other or both of them. So I did the wine science course because I wasn't interested in viticulture, but there's a crossover between the two degrees. Um, and one of the reasons why I decided to study um, wine was because I already knew a lot about wine anyway and fermentation. It's also a huge industry here in New Zealand, and particularly where I live is one of the most important um, wine growing and wine production areas in in New Zealand. And, uh, of course, my interest in alchemy, one of the curious things about the wine science degree is that It covers a number of different um, scientific disciplines, which is kind of unusual in university degrees. You don't usually get so many scientific disciplines kind of bunched together into one degree. So, for example, you have to study uh, botany, then plant physiology, then viticulture, and then soil science. You also do biology, structural biology, microbiology. You also do physics, uh, engineering physics, winery physics, winery engineering, um, and you do wine production, wine tasting, and then you do a whole bunch of uh, business papers as well about how to run wineries and stuff like that. So you learn all sorts of things like uh, industrial scale, refrigeration, electrical engineering, 
uh, mechanical engineering. You learn a lot about grape growing, um, grape picking and processing, and you learn everything about wine production. Uh, chemistry, uh, physical chemistry, organic chemistry, analytical chemistry. So it, it really does cover everything. And it's pretty extreme because they are squeezing papers on all those subjects into three or four years that would normally on their own take three or four years to learn but you have to kind of like do each one of those papers in a year so it's it's pretty hard going um and so one of the reasons of course why i did it was because uh an in-depth understanding of wine production is very helpful to um an alchemist and of course all the other things biology plant physiology and chemistry and physics are also all things that are important to understand. And I only had high school level understanding of all of those subjects when I first started getting involved in lab alchemy. And so the thing that, being on that degree program, the thing that that did was it put me in a position where I wasn't on the back foot anymore when I got into debates with people about the nature of the relationship between uh, modern science and classic alchemy. And so now I understand that a lot of those debates and the arguments that revolve around the nature of the relationship between modern science and alchemy, a lot of that stuff is rubbish. Because I've, I've seen it all taught and I've discussed it with professors at university and um, and I've seen the alchemical side and I've seen the chemical alchemical side and a lot of it really is just based on assumptions and rubbish chemists and like university level uh, science doesn't want to know anything about alchemy at all and the understanding that they have of the subject is extremely childish and they talk about it in that kind of a way um, and university lectures as well. Did you have to keep it on the down low so you wouldn't get expelled or something? Um, I wouldn't have been expelled or anything like that, but people would have just thought that it was a big joke. But I, there was uh, the woman who I had as my chemistry teacher, she was very open to discussing things like that. Even though she didn't believe in any of it herself, she was very curious about my understanding because I started asking her a lot of questions about things that I was looking for answers to and then she got curious about why I was asking specific questions about specific areas of chemistry like acetate chemistry and things like that and then I got quite good friends with her and we ended up in having a number of conversations about alchemy and stuff like that and she was quite shocked at not only how much I knew but about how much was known about alchemy especially the chemistry of alchemy and that her view that she had adopted from university and through up to PhD level at university of what alchemy was, was obviously extremely distorted and extremely superficial. So she was a little bit concerned about that as well, that she had been led to believe a lot of things about alchemy, which were not at all true. The reason I also asked about your wine science studies was as far as i know it's only in christianity and catholic in in the catholic tradition that wine is a big part of their practices and you know jesus turned water into wine do you think this is just a coincidence because 
wine was what they all drank in those days or was is it some other metaphor for something or is wine uh, like has some sort of esoteric quality to it well there are two sides to the answer to that the first side is that the the story of the life of uh, Christ before anything else is obviously an allegory and it's based on older pre-christian allegories like the story of osiris and mithras and things like that so before anything else there's no argument between people who understand religious texts and understand the esoteric nature of the old testament and the gospels that before anything else whether that guy christ actually lived or not the story of his life is an esoteric allegory that's connected with the process of initiation there's no argument about that so everything that happened all the major events that happened uh, supposedly in his life and were reported in the gospels virtually all of those stories have an esoteric background a symbolic and analogical background to them whether they actually happened or not they were drafted into the story version of his life um, for esoteric reasons. Also, a large part of the story of Christ was um, alchemical in nature because uh, the Old Testaments and the New Testament were um, partially alchemical allegories as well. And we know that because Kabbalah is all through both versions, of, uh, both recensions of the uh, the book biblical stories the old and new testaments there is kabbalah everywhere in both of those books and i think anybody who argues about that who knows anything about kabbalah uh, is living in a fantasy world the other thing we know about kabbalah is that alchemy and kabbalah have a very close relationship they're basically the inside and the outside stories of the same theme so we could say that Kabbalah is like the psychological or spiritual side of a, an esoteric story and that lab alchemy is the physical side of that story. And so when we look at Kabbalah and alchemy and compare them together, we notice that there's a whole lot of things about both those subjects that cross over. And so Kabbalists knew a lot about alchemy and alchemists knew a lot about Kabbalah. And what that means is that the Bible is full of both Kabbalism and full of alchemy. There's a good reason why, for example, when Christ was um, crucified, that one of the things that happened to him was that he was given vinegar to drink. Anybody who knows a lot about the acetate part of alchemy and the fact that it uses acetic acid, which comes from vinegar, will understand that the whole story of Christ's life, and particularly the crucifixion, is uh, an alchemical allegory for the acetate part. And it's not hard to figure out how it all works. So wine also has a part of that, because acetic acid, which was, is an important part of the acetate part, um, and in past ages was almost entirely um, uh, produced through allowing wine to oxidize. And sometimes beer and um, other simple fermented beverages, but primarily it came from wine. So there is a whole theme running through the ancient alchemical tradition 
up until the time of um, about the 13 and 1400s, where only the acetate path was the primary alchemical practice and story, and the core theme in the acetate path is allegories about the nature of winemaking. So, for example, when we have a look at a book by a guy called uh, Johann Segris Weidenfield called The Secrets of the Adepts, which he wrote in the 1600s, that book is basically a thesis on the subject of Raymond Lully, who was an alchemist in the 1200s, and he was one of the first people to bring Middle Eastern alchemy into the Western world. And uh, one of the things that Weidenfield says about Raymond Lully is that the core, the very key secret of alchemy, revolved around a thing which Lully called the philosophic spirit of wine. And when we research and look into that whole subject, uh, we find that Raymond Lully adopted, inherited a way of looking at alchemy that revolved around talking about all the techniques and practices of lab alchemy as if they were allegories of the winemaking viticulture process. And those allegories, the winemaking allegories and the wine symbolism and cipher nature of discussing the acetate path still exist today, although it's not very well known today. But virtually through 800 years of Western hermetic alchemical tradition, uh, that same symbolism of winemaking and viticulture that Raymond Lull uh, presented to the Western world has survived and is talked about and used by all the major figures that were part of the acetate tradition for the last 800 years. So, yeah, it, it, it is a really important thing. In order to decode that winemaking symbolism or analogy, you have to know a lot about winemaking. Um, because when they mention things about different substances in the acetate path, they talk about them as if they are substances in the winemaking process. And if you don't understand how all that works, the winemaking process in detail, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to mistake what they're saying as actually being products of wine itself. When in fact, Lully and Widenfield both said very clearly, we're not talking about wine here and we're not talking about the spirit of wine or ethanol. We're only using these as allegories for something else. So the fact that there is a, a uh, story in the Gospels about Christ at a wedding turning uh, wine into water, uh, there has to be something of esoteric significance uh, and probably alchemical significance in that uh, story as well, yeah. Maybe this explains why there's so many alchemists in France. <laughs> well, I wouldn't be surprised if that's one of the explanations why there are a lot of alchemists in France and why the wine industry ended up being such a big part of their culture there. Because there's no argument, I think, that European wine uh, in particular in Germany... France, 
Spain and Portugal in particular all go back to uh, a thousand years to um, around the time of Constantine and um, the Crusades and that time where knowledge of alchemy was being brought into Europe and all of those cultures learned all of those things like you know uh, wine growing viticulture and wine making are very old um, practices and industry going way way back into the Middle East way 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 back in time and those guys were some of the first people to understand about how all that worked and um, most of the tribes in the Middle and Near East and Africa you know back 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 in biblical times all understood how grapes were grown and how wine was made so it's a, a very very old tradition and it has always been intimately linked with um, the primary, what I believe is the primary uh, stream of alchemical teaching, which is the acetate part. So what is your personal goals uh, for the rest of your life? I mean, is it like some your religion you're following? Is it a hobby, an interest, or is it a just a passion? I don't think anybody can really uh, apply themselves to alchemy properly and understand it properly uh, unless they pretty much make it their life, which is one of the reasons why I went to university to study wine science and to study the sciences in, in general, uh, because my original intention was to get involved in an industry that would support my interest in alchemy. So I think the first thing for anybody who takes alchemy seriously and who expects and desires to have any degree of successes, you have to make alchemy your lifestyle. It, you, you can't really get anywhere with it simply by making it a hobby. And one of the reasons for that is that the people who actually know things about alchemy, who actually really know things about alchemy, very rarely ever discuss those things with people who only have an interest at ho hobby level. And they first of all want to know that you're as committed to the study of alchemy um, as they are, that, that you have made it a part of your life, and therefore that, you, that your commitment is deep enough that you understand the proper nature of the hermetic tradition generally and the things that are expected of people who are advanced in the hermetic tradition. So for me personally, uh, alchemy comes pretty much before anything else in my life. Everything I do revolves around it. Writing, teaching, lecturing, researching. They're all things that consume my life almost all of the time. And because of that, it would be natural for anybody to... Um, assume that the important thing for me must then be to succeed in the, the great work and achieving the Philosopher's Stone and the Elixir of Life. And, and to a degree, that, that definitely is true. But there are other things that are important as well, um, that anybody who has a very serious interest in alchemy and who has committed their life to the study and practice of alchemy is that um, today, the entire tradition is in a very bad state of repair, 
and um, there's a lot of rubbish information flowing around and being developed and added to the tradition every day and that there is a constant struggle by people who understand the tradition properly and who have actual real valuable experience in alchemy there's a constant struggle with those people to fight against this tidal wave of garbage information and superficial interest in alchemy and it, it, that side of the alchemical tradition uh, is particularly important to me because I kind of ended up in being put in a position of writing books and teaching um, and uh, it's become even more important in the last uh, few years because we've had at least one and possibly two deaths in the alchemical community, international alchemical community, simply because of uh, ignorance and stupidity where um, involvement in the alchemical community and in studying alchemy is concerned. If people were more accurately informed and have a better access to accurate instruction, that kind of thing is less likely to happen. If somebody doesn't take it um, into their own hands to bring accurate instruction and uh, teach proper attitude towards approaching the study of alchemy out into the open, into the public arena, make it more easily accessible, we're going to see those two deaths become a relatively common thing, I would think, because there are a lot of people doing very, very dangerous things with chemicals and the broader mainstream popular level of the alchemical community. So I would think naturally more people will end up being poisoned and more people will end up selling poisonous substances to the public and more people will end up dying from ingesting poisonous things or putting themselves in explosive situations and laboratories and things like that. If if somebody doesn't take responsibility for teaching the tradition properly. So my own approach to alchemy, that's a big part of it. I have that knowledge myself, and I consider it to be um, a, an abuse and irresponsible to not make an effort to make it more easily accessible for people at the popular level to um, be trained and taught in a proper approach to alchemy and in accurate information. Isn't it also true that it's you know if you give a complete recipe to somebody, they might be able to produce something, but the reason it's stupid to do that is because uh, it, there's a lot of things that you get out of coming up with the recipe yourself, like the journey to the recipe rather than just like give me the recipe you know there's no argument that if i had the entire recipe and had uh worked the entire process successfully through to the end i could take virtually anybody even a young child and sit them down and go put that in there mix that with that heat that like that rr and you could train a person right through the entire process 
in that kind of way. And all they wouldn't need any previous experience or knowledge or anything like that. So it's no different than teaching somebody how to bake a cake. Take an egg, take that butter, do this, do that, bake it at that temperature. There's no arguing about that. There's even historical um, uh, records of people who were taken on as students by adepts at relatively young ages who were taught the entire process right through to the end without having any uh, background understanding or, or knowledge and they succeeded themselves. The problem with that, as you say, is that what you then lack is understanding. When we talk about making the Philosopher's Stone or making the elixir of life, we're not just simply talking about producing physical substances. There are other issues here, other consequences for having those things, because nobody is going to produce those substances without using them. And therefore, uh, you put somebody in a position where they are capable of producing an infinite amount of gold or ingesting the elixir of life and changing their physical body, their own biology and their psychology through ingesting that substance, uh, there are consequences for those kinds of actions. And one of the problems with just being taught the recipe and producing those substances without any background understanding, without a proper uh, understanding of the hermetic tradition itself, is that when you end up with those substances at the end, you are more likely to do things with them that are dangerous, no matter what, whether your intentions are good or not, you are more likely to do things with them that are dangerous, and uh, you're more likely to become corrupted yourself by being in a position of having that kind of power. So it's foolish for anybody with that knowledge to teach somebody who doesn't have that background. And it's foolish for anybody to start studying alchemy with the hope of achieving those goals uh, in the belief that they're going to somehow get around to succeeding without having a proper uh, background understanding as well and then think that somehow they're not going to get themselves in trouble. That would be like deciding that you're going to build a nuclear reactor in your backyard and generate your own home electricity from it. Even if you could get your hands on the uranium that's required for the process. What, what, what is likely to happen in the course of um, taking on a project like that? The, the chances are you're going to kill yourself. And it's all going to come down to a lack of um, knowledge and a lack of appropriate experience in that situation. Um, too many people think of alchemy as being a new agey kind of thing, like high school chemistry, that it's not really dangerous. And that's not true at all. The reason why the old alchemists kept things secret was because one of the first things that they knew about alchemy is that it's dangerous. The inner work and the outer work, they are both at the extreme end of the story. They are both extremely dangerous. So, for example, to illustrate in more detail an answer to your question, the Lab Alchemy Forum that I've just started up, we have 17 people on that forum at the moment. Uh, it's closed, so we're not taking on anybody else. And the idea is to teach those 17 people uh, the entire process of the acetate bar from beginning to end. But it's going to take me at least one year 
just to teach that group of people the theory behind the entire process and the philosophy behind it, because that's another important aspect of it. The philosophy of alchemy is the thing that teaches us about the dangers, the, the morality and the ethics of alchemy, and um, about the history of the things that the old alchemists learned, usually by making mistakes, um, from succeeding in alchemy themselves. All of that stuff needs to be taught beforehand before you get anybody to the point in the process where they start being taught the serious secrets of the acetate path, which will eventually lead most of that group towards succeeding in the process. So it, it, it's an absolutely essential aspect of the whole subject. And anybody who attempts to get to success without that background um, philosophy and theory that the hermetic esoteric aspect of the studying of alchemy, anyone who attempts to get to the goal without those things is simply, they're not very intelligent and they're being highly irresponsible. So if people want to check out your work, where can they do that? And I guess you said you don't, uh, you don't uh, take in any more people for this uh, forum. So th this forum is really an experiment, and it grew out of the old forum, which was basically just teaching the whole theory of the lab work and the theory of the inner work, and particularly the inner work, because most people were interested in that. Um, so the psychology, uh, basic um, information about psychology was taught there, basic information about the psychology of Kabbalah, basic Kabbalah, and then all the details about what it's like to go through a proper alchemical initiatory experience in, internally and externally. All of that stuff was discussed in gross detail over a period of three years. And um, the way it was done was I would write each piece of a subject in an essay and then everybody would discuss those essays on the forum. Very productive process. Um, the people who were most interested, you know, seriously interested in that whole subject got a great deal out of it. Um, and so we're going to publish, it was so, the exchange on that group was so good and the amount of information that was provided was so good that we're going to publish it eventually. If, if we get round to it, if we have enough time to do it, we're going to publish it. Um, in the meantime, though, uh, to get access to all that kind of information, uh, because that forum is going to be closing down shortly, I'm going to start putting some of that stuff up at my website, uh, www.rubaphilos.com. Um, if you Google my name, you'll find that's probably at the top of the first page. Um, I'm just redoing my website now. And I'm not taking a hell of a lot of um, time on it at the moment. I'm just sort of biting away at it. But a large chunk of those essays will end up there to replace all the old lectures that were there, which are all very old and outdated now. Lots of diagrams and charts and descriptions of the diagrams and charts. Um, digital version of my of the third book of the Hermes Paradigm series. Uh, very shortly, a digital version of the first book in that series will be coming out. We're actually working on that now, getting it ready for self-publishing. Um, and then, so everything will revolve around my website as far as getting access to any forums or lectures or publications that I produce in the near future. Um, 
at the same time, the lab forum, which has grown out of the old forum, because there are a lot of people who joined that old forum for lab information, and a lot of the information was on the internal work. So I decided, well, we'll try an experiment and we'll start up a new forum. We'll cut down on the number of people that are allowed in there uh, so that we can focus the um, instruction more carefully. Uh, so that's an experiment. And if it works out really well, um, a year, year and a half, two years from now, I may do that again and open it up to the public in general and then handpick people to join that forum. I don't know whether that's going to happen or not, but certainly in the future it would be something that um, I would consider or maybe uh, one of the other guys who I work with um, who is uh, very experienced and advanced in the process might pick up and rerun that whole um, workshop himself or herself. Uh, so that's something to look forward to. And if that happens, that'll be advertised at my website as well. Cool. Well, thank you a lot for taking the time to talk to me again. You're welcome, Alex. If you want to check out more of Rubafillers' work, go to rubafillers.com. That's R-U-B-A-P-H-I-L-O-S.com. Now, let's sit back and relax with some music by the Gentlemen's Anti-Temperance League with a track from their album Lamp called A Song in Standard Time. Go to thegatl.com for more information. All links can be found in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com as usual. And don't forget to follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter. Next Sunday we are going to have a very special episode dedicated to one of the most dark and sinister characters of history. (laughs) Freedom is in the mind. Okay.